Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you. <laughs> you guys ready? You're, you're ready. You're ready. Good, good. You know, um, I've realized that there's two, two groups of people in the world. Two groups. Two groups that I've experienced in uh, nearly two decades of ministry. Two groups that uh, you have experienced as you have worked in various places, jobs that you're in. Two groups that you probably had in your homes that you recognize. I want to talk to you about two groups of people this morning. There There are two groups. The first group is the godly group. The second group is the ungodly group. Have you known these groups? There's a godly group and an ungodly group. First, the the godly group. The godly group says that they have made this commitment to God. They've made a commitment in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, They've said that, that we're going to follow Him. Not only are they saying that, that they desire this kind of relationship, this kind of commitment with God, but, uh, but they're, so, they're so sensitive to, uh, to following what it is that, that God has in store for them that, uh, that when they recognize the ungodly group, when they see the kinds of behavior that happens over in that group, when they, they recognize the kind of activity that they, that they engage in regularly, it turns their stomach. In fact, it, it's so bothersome to them that it actually tortures their soul. Uh, you might as well just uh, fill a, a black cauldron full of all the terrible behavior you can imagine and boil it in their souls because they're so bothered by what they see. This, this is the godly group. If I were to put a face on this particular group, it would be uh, people like Mabel Knuth. I've met Mabel uh, uh, many years ago in ministry. Mabel's 80, 90, 100, 200 years old. But she is this faithful, un- unbelievably faithful woman who has constantly said, oh, my commitment is to God. And, and when she recognizes outside of her door and outside in the world uh, the kind of behavior that goes on with the ungodly group, it just, it just turns her soul. And she wonders. She wonders if God is going to bring justice. That's the godly group. Then there is the ungodly group. You, you know this group. You probably don't even need me to, to give a description of who this group is. right? There's two mantras to this group. The first mantra for this particular group, the ungodly group, is that if it feels good, it is good. Right? I mean, they live their lives really about their own sense of pleasure. Whatever would bring their lives the most pleasure is, is what is most desirable. This may take shape as they, uh, they look over their own sexual desire and, and, and they just allow that to, to live out extravagantly in their own uh, sense of being. Anything that it would take. 
It might even be uh, that they allow themselves any kind of uh, entertainment value that is out and available in the world. Any means of entertainment is, is theirs to have. They, they desire this. Their mantra, after all, is if it feels good, it is good. And so they engage in any manner of their own self-pleasure imaginable. The other mantra that they live by is, it's how I want it, when I want it, where I want it. This world really is about them. This world really is about uh, their own sense of authority. And they think of accountability to nobody as certainly not God. I mean, accountability to God is laughable. The idea that, that God might be an authority figure over them is is absolutely absurd in their world. There are two groups of people, the godly and the ungodly. If I were to put a face on the ungodly, I think of maybe people that I, I go to the gym with regularly. I listen to the kinds of conversations that they have, and, and, and I, I kind of feel sorry for them because the kinds of conversations that take place are things that that revolve around party buses, drinking, and sex. Life seems to be just one party bus stop to the next. There are two groups. There, are, there is the godly group, and there is the ungodly group. Now, if I were to hand out quizzes today, if I had a bunch of questions for you in regards to the characteristics of these two groups, which one would you be? Would you find yourself firmly planted in the godly group or in the ungodly group? Now, you can probably imagine that there is a, a fair amount of tension between these groups. Can you imagine that? That the godly group, they have decided, they have made this commitment to, to live for God, which, which has meant that they have restricted themselves according to God's moral code. But the ungodly feel no such restriction. They feel like they're absolutely free to sin, to do whatever it is that they desire, uh, to, to live according to their own pleasure. And not only do they not have a governing moral code that restricts how they live morally in this world, but they flaunt it before God. Not only are they sinning, but they're sinning and saying God can't do anything about it. They refuse any accountability before the God of the universe. And this tension, this tension may, may raise some questions. It may raise in our minds some questions that we might have about God, about His capability, about His power, about His strength. If we're honest with ourselves... This raises some questions about God's ability to respond, doesn't it? How is God going to bring justice? What's God's response going to be to the godly group and to the ungodly group? Maybe we begin asking God questions like this. God, does everyone get to heaven? Does everyone in the godly group and everyone in the ungodly group, does, does everybody get to heaven? 
God, will you practice justice for both groups? God, will, will, you, will you be there at heaven's gate? Will you be handing out participation trophies to everyone who comes through merely for existing? And the question we're asking is, is God, can I live like hell and go to heaven? What is God's response to these two groups? How will God respond justly to, to the ungodly and to the godly? Maybe you've had questions like this one. Now, the good news, the great news, in fact, is that, that God has provided answers in His Word. In fact, there's a church in the early years of the church that, uh, that they're asking very similar questions to the ones you and I are asking. They recognize that there is two groups of people, the, the godly and the ungodly, and they're asking questions about God's justice. And they're asking questions of God and His character and His ability and His strength. And they want to know, God, is my faith real? Is it misplaced? Uh, is, is how I decide to live, does it really matter? And the apostle, the apostle Peter, comes along and he writes two letters. And in his second letter, he begins to, to lay out the answers to these kinds of questions and he lets this church know what it is that they need to know and why. You see, Peter recognizes that there are two kinds of groups. Uh, legitimately, there is the godly group and then there is the ungodly group. And he says that God is going to make promises to both. God is going to make promises, two promises in fact. One for the godly group and one for the ungodly group. And as we dig into this text this morning, we're going to recognize that there is a promise for the godly and a promise for the ungodly. And what we need to know is what these promises are and why we need to hold on to them. Join me in 2 Peter. Join me in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're in your pew Bible sitting in front of you, it's going to be page 853. If you're wondering where 2 Peter is, just keep on trucking all the way toward the end. If you get to Jude or Revelation, you've gone just a little bit too far. 2 Peter chapter 2. God's going to give a promise to the ungodly. The promise that God gives to the ungodly is one of punishment. The ungodly get punished. I want you to see God's response, His promise to the ungodly group. Read with me in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if He continued, or excuse me, if He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
If God did all of these things. Now I want you to notice that what Peter does here is he opens up the pages of history and he says that God absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, has the capability, has the power, has the strength to answer decisively to the ungodly group. And as he opens up the pages of history, he, 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 he says here, here, there's three instances that I'm going to give you that maybe you're aware of in which God has acted decisively uh, to, to promise punishment for the ungodly group. He opens up and he says, there was these angels and they sinned and God sent them to hell. And they're in a dungeon now and they're awaiting their final punishment. And then he brings us to, to Noah and he, he brings us to the flood and there was wicked people on earth and there was uh, a group of ungodly that, that, were, uh, that were so present that God said, I'm going to destroy them all. My justice will reign in the form of a flood. And God acts decisively in the pages of history. And then he takes us one more step. And he takes us to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I have responded to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. I rain down fire from heaven. And in each, we see that, that God has the power, God has the strength, God has the ability to respond with a promise that the ungodly will be punished. God will bring His vengeance. This is a great Valentine's Day message right here. But there's more to this story. There, there's more to this promise of punishment that God is going to bring to the ungodly group. God is going to do it now. And He's going to do it later. The, the great thing about asking this question of God and His character and recognizing that there's two groups is that God will bring punishment, but it's not just later that it happens. So look with me at the latter portions of verse 9 and notice that this happens now. This judgment, this punishment is happening already. It started at the very end of verse 9. He's going to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Okay? The ungodly for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. What the text is saying is that the punishment for those who live in the ungodly group with no set of, 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 of moral restriction on their life, who live for pleasure, who, who disobey God, who, who, who are saying... Of God, you don't have any authority over me. I am not accountable to you. God is saying in His Word, the ungodly will know punishment later, but they will also know punishment right now. And so maybe you're thinking, maybe you're thinking of the, the ungodly rich and famous, right? They seem to be rich and famous, they seem to have it all together. They seem to have all of these blessings. How is it uh, that the rich and famous who are also in the ungodly group, who mock God, maybe, maybe we would think of people who at least in the past have, uh, have, have flaunted their godlessness and have questioned the authority of God. Maybe we think of people like Madonna or Lady Gaga or Charlie Sheen. 
Maybe we look at people and say, well, it doesn't look like they're being punished at all. But the text says that they are. So perhaps there's those things that we just don't see. Perhaps while they live these extravagant lives, perhaps they struggle with depression or anxiety. Perhaps they struggle deeply with a, with a sense of a deep insecurity about who they are and what it is that they need to do. Perhaps they struggle with, with, with great loneliness. They have all of the world at their disposal, but they're absolutely alone. And the text tells us that the ungodly are already being punished. Perhaps it's those who, who, who you know, perhaps, that, that have decided to, to, to live out every sexual fantasy imaginable. And you say, it seems like they're, they're, they're living comfortably, that, that everything is going well. Uh, maybe even if we were to, to, to leave, the, maybe if, if we were even to, to, to leave one, one section, right? And we were to say, not only do they have to, to deal with perhaps a sexually transmitted disease, but they have to deal with the fact that now they're numb to any true intimacy. And the text tells us that the ungodly are already experiencing punishment. We could probably stand and talk about those who are, who are living for their work, who are living to gain uh, finances in their lives, so much so that it drives every decision that they make. And they're so stressed all the time that they pushed anyone close to them away. The text says, those in the ungodly group, they're already experiencing punishment. God promises that those in the ungodly group will receive punishment. But that's not the only promise that he's making in this text. I really want to assure you of that. God also is promising the godly group something. He's promising that the godly group will know God's rescue. Recognize this in the text. Go with me to the end of verse 5. I told you that we have Noah and we have Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And these, these characters come up again. Not only were they, they part of God's judgment, but they were also God's men. Noah was saved. He was rescued. Lot knew the rescue of God from, uh, from the fire from heaven. Notice what he says. The end of verse 5. God brought a flood on its ungodly people, but He protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So Noah and his family. When you skip down to, to verse 7, he talks about Lot. and He said, If he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for, the righteous, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds of he saw and heard. Now, now listen to verse 9. If this is so, if this is so, if God can rescue Noah from a flood, if God can rescue Lot 
from certain destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. God is promising rescue in trial. Now, there may be a couple things that we need to recognize about trial. God's promise is that we're not going to not have trials. God's promise is, is not that, that He's just going to pluck every trial from, from our path and, and say, smooth sailing from here. God's promise instead is that in the midst of the promise, He will take us out of it. That some way, somehow, He'll, he'll rescue us from the midst of a trial. Now, I want to make certain that you understand that, that trials are not trivials. Trials are not necessarily when the, the car breaks. Trials are not necessarily when the dishwasher stops working. Uh, trials are not necessarily when you, when you go home and, and find that one of the pipes has burst because it's cold outside. It might feel like one, but trials, trials that we're talking about here in the text, trials that, that would cause us to question a God and His goodness, uh, that, would ask us to, that would cause us to ask questions about God, about His justice in the world, are trials that would, that would threaten our faith. Uh, they're trials that would, that would cause us to, to look and question, is God... Does God have the kind of strength that it takes? Does God really respond with the kind of justice I think He responds with? And maybe you know all too well the trials of God. The trials that sometimes happen that God is promising to rescue you from. Maybe, maybe you know of a high school student. Maybe you are a high school student. And it seems like every day as you walk into the cafeteria, it is a trial for you. It's a trial that threatens your faith. You, you, you want to live in the godly group, but, but there is a tension. High school student, hear me. God promises to rescue you from the trial. Perhaps you're a parent Perhaps your kids are, are beginning to tell you that they don't believe in Jesus. That when you want them to come to church, they're, they're looking at you in the eye and say, I don't want any part of this stupid God thing. And you find yourself in this, in this trial that's threatening, to, to, threatening your faith to, to, to cause you to question God, His goodness, His strength, His ability. Parent. The words of Scripture are that God can rescue you from that trial. If God can take Noah out of the flood, if God can rescue Lot from certain judgment when He sends fire from heaven, He can respond in your trial and rescue you too. I remember an instance early on in my ministry career. Uh, there was a great deal of tension surrounding my life, and I would go home, and uh, there was just a, uh, one of those anxieties. You, you know what I'm talking about that, just, that, that causes you almost to want to curl up in a ball and, and never leave your house. 
It was a kind of anxiety that, uh, that just puts your stomach in knots and, and you begin questioning, oh God, is this what you want for me? And I remember in the midst of that trial that, that God provided people that I had the opportunity every week uh, to drive two hours away to a, to a home of a mentor of mine, and, and he would just walk me through step by step. He kind of nursed me along. And in that, God was providing rescue. Several years later, he would open up the door, and I would have an opportunity. And God provided rescue. There are promises to these two groups. There are promises to the godly and promises to the ungodly. And folks, if you find yourself, if you took that quiz and said, I'm of the godly group, when you experience trial, know God promises rescue. So why? Why in the world do we hold on to these promises why is it so important that we would come and recognize these two groups and recognize the promises that God has in the midst of, of hard times? We hold on to the promises. Because when we do, it says so clearly, it says so clearly of our faith, God, You are strong. God, You are mighty. God, You are powerful. God, You can respond justly. And when we hold on to these promises, listen, when we hold on to these promises, we live like God's in charge. When we hold on to these promises, the, the promises that He gives to the godly and promises that He gives to the ungodly, uh, what we say so clearly is that God is in charge. And so when we view the evening news and we recognize that there is good and evil around the world and we see Christians perhaps that are giving their lives, we can say, I know, I can live with confidence. My faith is firm. Why? Because I recognize that God's in charge. I'm going to live that way. When we walk out our front door and we recognize that, that there is good and evil outside of our doorway, Maybe it's in our work. Maybe it's just right outside. Maybe it's with our neighbors. And when we recognize that there's two groups, we live like God's in charge. Our faith isn't shattered. Our faith isn't threatened. We recognize God's power to bring justice. When we look out into our living room and we recognize that there's two groups, the godly and the ungodly. What we know beyond a shadow of a doubt when we hold on to these promises that we can live like God's in charge. That His promises will be felt in these two groups. Maybe even when we walk into the bathroom and we look ourselves in the mirror and we recognize the kind of turmoil that sometimes happens in a life desired for faith, we, we, we can say so plainly, God, when I hold on to these promises, I'm going to live like You're in charge. There's two, two kinds of people in the world. 
There's two groups. One is a godly group. And one is an ungodly group. And God gives promises to both. And when we're willing, when we're ready, we hold on to these promises. And we live like God's in charge. Let's pray. Gracious God, you're good. Um, I pray that we're hearing this. I pray you're toughening our faith. I pray that we have the, the kind of faith that has grit. Father, when we're up against issues of justice, I pray we'll live like you're in charge. I pray we believe the promises that you've made. God, help us to open up this book and live by it. I pray, Lord, that you are present. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.